Welcome to Underreported. I'm Nicholas Lemon. Thank you for tuning in. We take it for granted that government should manage the economy for the benefit of ordinary citizens. But this wasn't what government did for the country's first century. When it began to involve itself in the economy, the first place it went was regulating the size and scope of big corporations, or trusts as they were then known. Antitrust law was a dominant element in American political debate in the early 20th century. Then, over time, it faded as a front-rank political issue. Today, we welcome Tim Wu, the law professor and political activist who is one of the country's leading public intellectuals. His book is called The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age, and was released in November 2018 from Columbia Global Reports. In it, Wu argues that the time has come to restore the primacy of antitrust. We need to understand bigness as a problem and aggressive antitrust law as the solution. In the year since its release, this book has helped reframe the debate on the American economy. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. So let's start, um, as uh, we New Agey people t like to say, tell me about your journey that led you to antitrust. Um, a lot of readers who've been following you for years think of you as a tech guy. In the time since we published the book, the tech antitrust connection has become obvious, but it wasn't always. So what, what got you here? That's a, a, a great question. Um, so I am a tech guy. I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley uh, in the early, late 90s, early 1000s. And I guess what got me to antitrust was the aftermath of tech consolidation and the feeling that, you know, this ideal that we had, that we could re-engineer uh, the economy to, to inspire entrepreneurism, that it could be a, a kind of lifting force for lots of people. This was, you know, the early ideals of, of 90s and Silicon Valley had been laid waste by an old um, foe, namely uh, bigness or, or excessive scale, um, and that uh, the sort of a flourishing ecosystem had turned into just a few companies. That's part of it, um, a big part of it. I also think I was individually inspired by Louis Brandeis and his vision of, of a flourishing life and what the economy could, could be. And those, in some ways, combined on this subject of, of antitrust, uh, which, uh, you know, during the years we're talking about, had kind of retreated into a much more silent version of itself than it had been historically. So let's go back and, and establish, uh, for those not familiar, what, what antitrust is. So starting sort of at the beginning, uh, what was the Sherman Act of 1890? So the easiest way to understand it is just as an anti-monopoly law. Um, in the late 19th century, the American economy uh, was transformed from an economy mostly comprised of small producers and small businesses uh, into one dominated by a series of trust monopolies, you know, one per industry. There was a sugar trust, an oil trust that was Standard Oil run by John Rockefeller. The railroads were monopolized. So you had an entirely different f economic structure emerging, and it produced an enormous backlash, um, a popular backlash, 
among people who felt not only was this economically dangerous, but in some ways uh, intention or betrayal of the ideas of the Constitution, which had uh, always stood for the idea of controlling concentrated power. So uh, that is what the initial antitrust laws were, very simply a reaction to the monopolization of the U.S. economy in the late 19th century. So skipping ahead, and this is one thing that, that kind of is a strange thing to think about for us lay people. Um, monopoly isn't actually illegal in U.S. antitrust law, right? So how can that be if the laws were passed to curb monopoly? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it's been contested whether they meant monopoly itself to be illegal. The, the statute, the law itself, says monopolization is a crime. So, and typically in the criminal law, you, you punish conduct, mm -hmm. not status. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's unconstitutional to punish people for, let's say, being a drug addict or right. being a, uh, as opposed to doing something. Right. So the, that sort of technical, it seems pretty clear that they were against monopoly and wanted to clear Mm -hmm. the world of monopoly, but in some technical way, the status of being a monopolist is not illegal. Let's now go to Louis Brandeis and just tell us about him. Who was he uh, and, and where was he in this debate about monopoly and antitrust? You know, Louis Brandeis um, is a famous figure, um, justice of the Supreme Court and a confidant of Woodrow Wilson, but he might not have... Um, been a prominent figure uh, if, if in the 40s he hadn't become radicalized by the intrusions of the trust movement, particularly J.P. Morgan's intrusions, uh, into his home territory of New England. Uh, you you mean in his 40s, not the 40s? The 40s, yes, yeah. in his 40s. Yeah. Um, you know, he's the Which kind of guy... Early, tw early 20th century. Yes, he's the kind of guy who, um, you know, became radicalized later in life. Uh, maybe like Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> he, he just saw what was happening around him and, and wanted to do something. Um, so he led uh, uh, the resistance to the monopolization of New England Railroad and trans into a J.P. Morgan to sort of a tributary of the J.P. Morgan empire. And in that uh, process, I think, sort of discovered his voice as a very effective advocate for you know, an, an older American tradition, a uh, tradition that stressed equality, small producers, sort of freedom of, of, uh, of doing business, and, and even more deeply, um, this idea of a kind of citizenship centered in ownership of your own means of production. So he wasn't a Marxist. He was, he was actually quite different than the anarchists or the Marxists, who were also uh, socialists, very popular at his time. But you know, a different kind of, of flavor and uh, had a profound effect on, on American uh, economic policy in the early 20th century. So let's go to, um, you mentioned his relationship with Woodrow Wilson and, and just a, a little more sort of sketching in the history. Um, and, and I want to bring out one point that you made too. So we get taught, at least in sixth grade, that Theodore Roosevelt was a trust buster. 1912, you have maybe this election that we're just entering will be the second, but that was an election, where a presidential election, where antitrust policy was a big, big presidential campaign issue. You had three candidates, Taft, 
Wilson and Roosevelt, who was running in a third party. And in particular, Roosevelt and Wilson were arguing about antitrust in a way that kind of complicates this picture of Teddy Roosevelt as a trust buster. So could you sketch that out? And remember, Brandeis is advising Wilson and writing speeches for him and so on, and got rewarded a few years later by being appointed to the Supreme Court by Wilson. Yeah. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt is a, a, a really important figure in this uh, history. And um, a, as you allude to, there's in some ways two Theodore Roosevelts. Um, the earlier version uh, was a robust enforcer of the antitrust laws. Actually, I give him credit as the first enforcer. And he founds the tradition of trust busting. Um, he is courageously willing to challenge uh, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller, two of the most powerful men of his age or any age, and ultimately breaks up uh, Standard Oil and um, puts a stop to J.P. Morgan's campaigns. But somewhere in the uh, out of office in the late 1900s, the knots, he starts to change his thinking. I, I feel that he had this internal contradiction. He always, in some ways, uh, admired the majesty of the large corporation. He, he believed um, in an imperial vision of the, of the U.S. Uh, uh, nation or, or state. Um, he liked enormous navies, things like that. And he started to think, well, you know, the thing to do isn't to break up these trusts, but to put them under government supervision and control. So that was his idea. The new nationalism is what he called it. Yeah, we, we've been talking a little bit. I, I, you probably haven't seen it yet, but I have a book that deals with this just out. And in the book, I coin a phrase which may be funny or may not, clash of the titans liberalism. Mm -hmm. and, and that really, to me, is, is Roosevelt. He likes big corporations and big government. And, and as long as they're both big, in his latter phase of his life, he was happy. Yeah, I think that's right. It's kind of a early ver version of this countervailing powers idea. Mm -hmm. um, or, um, but Woodrow Wilson, uh, advised by Brandeis um, and Taft, for that matter, were both committed to the older idea of um, breaking power, deconcentration of the economy. And so they rejected Roosevelt's uh, visions. Uh, it was kind of a close call. It's interesting to ask what might have happened if Roosevelt had won um, and if he had Congress on his side. Uh, some of what Roosevelt was doing looks a little bit like what Mussolini would do later in his uh, nationalism of yeah, the, of the Italian economy. And kind of corporatism where, you know, the uh, powerful state and the most powerful corporations are allied for the greater glory of mankind. Uh, that obviously went in directions that weren't all positive. So we may have um, really, uh, that 1912 election uh, maybe was what the most consequential of, uh, of the 20th century or one of them. And, and then, you know, you get later, this is a lot in my book and not so much in your book, wars over these issues inside the New Deal between the camp that, that wants to have, you know, is very dismissive of antitrust and the, and the camp that isn't. Um, and and uh, 
anyway, that's a whole other story. It looks but, like but, I'm behind a bit, but I do have but, an academic supplement <laughs> which covers yeah. that period. But, 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 <laughs> but one, well, there's a famous story where, it's not just a story, it's in the archives, where Brandeis sends a message through an aide while a sitting Supreme Court justice to Roosevelt, FDR, not TR, saying, I don't, you, you don't get it about bigness and I don't like your policies here, and, and I want you to change your policies. I don't know if Supreme Court justices still do that kind of thing, but he did. It's in the archive. And then uh, Roosevelt, uh, I don't know what he did, but this is before the National Industrial Recovery Act was struck down by the court with Brandeis voting no. So um, the point is, it's not a liberal or conservative issue. It's, it's a fight, in a sense, within both camps. It's a big versus small issue. There's one other thing I want to bring up before we get a little closer to Can the Can I presence. mention one thing? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's gone away in our time. No, in fact, not I, at I think all. that on the, you know, among those who are interested in restructuring the American economy right now, they're the same issues are coming up. Do we, do we want to, let's take Facebook. Maybe you wanted to get there. You know, do you, in some sense, make Facebook a established social media company who um, does what government says, or, or do you break them up and reduce their power? So, Well, I'm not ready for to yeah. go there yet in this, in this podcast, because I want to make a couple stops on the way. Yeah. So stop number one, when you go back and read the stuff in the, the sort of early glorious antitrust days, there's one thing that's really, really striking, to me at least, and that is, and you alluded to it sort of, it's all about producers. It's not about consumers. Um, nobody ever says the word consumer. When Ida Tarbell is writing her book, you know, Attacking Standard Oil, it's on behalf of the little oil companies in western Pennsylvania, one of which was run by her father. It's not, sh no one is arguing about the price of oil at the pump to the gasoline buyer. Um, so where did this why aren't they talking about consumers, and where did consumers sort of get into the picture in, in the way antitrust is conceived? That's a great question. Um, I think, as you said, the motivating force uh, behind the Sherman Act and, and its reinforcement in 1914 uh, is the production, protection of small producers, farmers, um, other uh, uh, traditional elements of the American economy. Um, to the extent consumers are mentioned, there is concern with price jacking by monopoly. So that's um, the mentioning. But it's not, um, the, the idea of consumers as a unit isn't even there at all, right? And so when does it change? I mean, just to interrupt for a sec, just yeah. as an example, it's, it's striking today. So, as you know, there was a, a, a New Deal era law called the Robinson-Patman Act that was supposed to protect small retailers against chain stores. And, you know, the whole argument is it, it's ironic in the age of Walmart and Amazon because the whole argument is essentially it's not of primary importance what price is delivered to the consumer. It's important to have small retail units just as a, as a good for the public. Um, and you, you can't imagine people even arguing that today. Um, it's, it's amazingly different as a frame. But anyway, so that leads no, to... I think it, there's a broader story there, one beyond scope of this, even this book, or maybe your book has it, um, which is the 
reimagination of what is glorious in the American economy. And I think there, you know, if you ask the 19th century, the glory belonged to produce to people who create things with their hands and skilled artisans or, uh, you know, in our 21st century and for some time now, a major goal of American economy has been to imagine everyone as consumers and the overriding priority is getting them stuff cheap. And, you know, there's a long big story about the rise of consumer culture, the rise of advertising, and then also the specific influence of, of microeconomics as driving American economic policy, right, you know, uh, and which centers on the consumer. So microeconomics is centered on the idea that what you aim for in economic policy is basically getting stuff to people for cheap. There's more complicated in, ways of putting it. market function right, and things like but that. But you, you enable functioning of markets, aiming for perfectly competitive markets, which drive prices down to marginal costs and eliminate dead weight loss. That, that's it's jargon. not yeah. okay to think in terms of economic institutions, in a sense. Well, the problem with thinking about producers from this perspective, or favoring small producers over large, is that uh, inter the small producers might charge higher prices. And if your axiomatic idea is that you're trying to achieve perfect market competition, sort of classical economic sense, then that priority or any interest in producers um, is inevitably going to deviate from that goal. So, so that's the, um, uh, and you know, some of this, so the, the transformation is really in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You can see the first reflection of it in Learned Hand, famous judge's uh, uh, Alcoa decision, where he says, you know, the Sherman Act was written ev to predict, you know, to protect a vision of, of smaller producers, even if that comes at some cost of efficiency. That's what he says. So he's already realizing this efficiency, which is, you know, the neoclassical the neo economic thrust. But he said, you know, they made that decision. Well, in the 60s and 70s, powerful movement, you know, rising out of the Chicago School of Economics, starts to suggest, no, 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 everyone had it wrong all along. Uh, the Sherman Act was originally actually intended to reduce prices for consumers. Now, that argument is made in the face of a huge amount of evidence, but they ignore the evidence. Uh, Robert, Robert Bork is the, the key fi figure who, who writes the legal side of this. Um, the economists don't care about the intent of the Sherman Act, but he does. And, um, you know, for some time, Bork is taken as radical fringe. Uh, you know, this is not what anyone thought the Sherman Act had said, but uh, he catches on. I can say a little bit more about why that happens. I think consumers are hot in the 70s. It's also on the left. Yeah. Um, you know, you have um, this idea of consumer rights being big and, and Ralph Nader you know, being a celebrity and the Ford Pinto and, hey, how about, you know, making corporations care a little bit about how they're treating us? So it all kind of dovetails together, left and right, into this uh, kind of consumer welfare revolution. Right. And, and as you say, Bork is the key framing figure, and liberals didn't fight back that much. There's, there's a fascinating book that you probably know by F Justice Breyer, before he was a justice, about how he was Ted Kennedy's chief aide, you know, helping deregulate the airline industry for consumer benefit. And you get a real blast of how appealing this was to liberals at the time. And, you know, Ted Kennedy made his famous speech torpedoing Bork's Supreme Court nomination 
and he didn't mention Bork's chief intellectual contribution on antitrust. He mentioned a bunch of other stuff. So let's stop there, pause, and then start part two, which will yeah. take us into the present. Um, so we'll be right here, wherever you're listening to us, very mm-hmm. soon. And Tim's book, again, is The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age, and is available in bookstores everywhere now. You'll find links to this in all of our books, as well as our blog, events, and more at globalreports.columbia.edu. That's globalreports.columbia.edu. I'm Nick Lemon. Thanks for listening.